Hi there. Um, so, my name's Rod, and um, we're in the middle of a series looking at um, two Hebrew words, Manuha and Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim being the Hebrew word for Egypt, and Manuha being the Hebrew word for, for rest. And so we've been talking about um, the idea of trying to escape from a life of um, busyness and relentless work and anxiety to a life more characterized by, by rest and gratitude and delight. And in this second half of the series, we're trying to apply those ideas to practical areas of life, different areas of life. Um, so today we have, well, he's not really a special guest speaker because he's been part of the community for a little bit, but someone that you might not know, my friend Dan, and um, who's recently been doing some, some training and some work in the area of permaculture. And so he's going to come and uh, talk to us today about this idea of Mitzrayim and Manuha and how it might apply to, to food and to um, the kind of areas of nature that, that connect with our consumption of food. So I'm going to welcome Dan. Good morning. Thanks, Rod. So, it's been a real privilege to take in what Rod and Shane have been sharing with us over the, oh, it's been ages now, hasn't it? Fucking months now. Um, they're both breathing a sigh, <laughs> both breathing a sigh of relief because I don't have to do the recap today. <laughs> but um, as Rod and Shane have said, we've been looking at this amazing prayer, and particularly the, the line that says, give us today our daily bread, uh, which just lacks significance in our current day and age, because when was the last time we made bread? When was the last time we grew crops that make bread? And from those actions come the real gratefulness that gives rise to the manuha, the real rest of God. Um, and we're reading from the book by Norman Wiersbel, Living the Sabbath, reading about what is true delight, what is the root of Sabbath. And, and Norman Wiersbel says that Sabbath is the pinnacle of our life as Christians. We often think it's just like a guilty rest day to take. And, um, it shouldn't be that. It is the pinnacle of, of every week. It is the pinnacle of creation. And uh, we want to try and work that into our lives. So today I'm just going to, um, we're going to recap the points first. But um, if we can go to the next slide, which I have the controls for. But let's just recap. Um, Mitzrayim, Hebrew word for Egypt. Um, we talk about Mitzrayim being full of restless discontent. We work ceaselessly, and yet we'd never, ever have enough. I won't go through all the points, but I suppose we find it hard in Mitzrayim to be dependent. We always feel guilty when we have to depend on anyone. 
And the story of Israel sees Israel being drawn out of Mitzrayim into a desert, a wilderness where they had to detox. And for all those years, every day, they had to depend on not themselves, but from the eternal God before they went onwards to Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, even greater wealth and riches than what they had experienced in Mitzrayim. But before that, God had to teach them a lesson um, about what rest is. And manuha is, well, it's what it means to be human, to live with God in the community that existed before time, between God, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, to depend on God entirely every day, and to enjoy his rest, to be able to say that what I have done is finally enough. Very difficult points, and we're going to examine them today through the context of nature and food. It's a very complex topic. It sort of sits at the nexus between nature. We will talk about environment maybe later, if you need God. We're going to talk about, we've had talked about work last week. Thanks, Jackie. Um, and it also talks about hospitality, which Rod had spoken about already. So forgive me if I sort of like spill into those areas again, but it's a very sort of unifying topic. And it's an important topic. We're from Melbourne, well, most of us. Um, you know, we're in love with food. I, I, I don't like my food. It's almost idolatrous. I was born in Singapore from Chinese parents. Singapore and Malaysian influences, if you, you know, Hokkien me comes from our hometown. Um, and then I was literally wedded to French culture for many years, having lived there. So I feel like blessed to have, you know, little bits of ingredients added to my life, um, such that, you know, my daughter who's half Chinese, half French, has just been so enriched by these cultures of food and every good memory that I have from childhood is just infused with the the table, having people around and people around. We had fourteen people at our house at one time. We'd sit around a table and have boarders and relatives and family um, just sitting around and enjoying food. So what is it about food? It's it's so sensual. Um, it is fulfilling, it not just fills our gut but it fills our soul. And I guess the questions are not so much about what we eat. Um, we look at Luke 4, and we see that, I'll, I'll read Luke 4, verses 1 to 4, and it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That's a very important lesson for all of us. We, I was thinking about how I would be after 40 days. I'm the kind of person that find, found the 40-hour famine really difficult. Jesus after 40 days would have been not bacon in my case, but, um, you know, just bread. He underlines that point where that Israel would have learned in the wilderness that the sustenance 
the faith that he had came from God. And before going into his ministry, he had to go through that time of detox to really put his trust in God before the physical sustenance that came from food. Um, there's no guilt that we should experience with food. It's meant to be good because God created it as such. But this lesson that um, Jesus is teaching us here is it's about a spiritual attitude. It comes from a spiritual vision, our ability to see life, creation, as God sees it. So we want to see, um, I want to keep, keep two things in mind today, two lenses that I want you to think about. The microscope and the fisheye lens. We'll come back to it later. But one, essentially, is looking at creation close up and the fisheye lens. It's, there's a product that comes out that's out now. It's, you can buy this 360-degree fisheye lens and you can put it on your bike. And thanks to this convex, yeah, convex, convex lens, you can film 360 and you can relive those moments in 360. You can pan around. Amazing. Um, and it just enables you to see life all around you. And I guess what, we wanna, what I want to try and get us to do today as a group is to really examine life up close and then back out in the macro, but also 360, seeing our position in creation. So food plays an important part in bringing us together, and it also helps us create memories, and yet food can be so powerful in helping us forget. Um, and there's a passage in Numbers 11 where, and Exodus 16 where the Israelites just complain incessantly to Moses to the point where Moses asks God to kill him because he is so sick of the whining of the Israelites for meat and other things. They're always complaining about how things are better in midstream. And we often do that. And I think that it's, it's hard because... Mitzrayim is delicious sometimes. Um, we'll, we'll consider that when we um, when we during the break. But um, I wanted to think about that because I have been so guilty at the counter so often of choosing Mitzrayim over Manuha. So before we start, like just as you. As you sit at your tables, um, often we get asked these really good questions and then they're on the spot and then we have to give answers straight away and I'm terrible at doing that. So I'm asking the question right now so you can ruminate about it and answer it later. How do you deal with eating manna in Mitzrayim? Have a think about that and we'll discuss it later. So we're going to do this in three parts. We're just going to talk a bit about food under Mitzrayim, food under Manuha. And at the last part, we'll talk a bit about how the community, each one of us, and as a community, we can maybe make a difference in the way that we choose between Mitzrayim and Manuha. So what's Mitzrayim? What does Mitzrayim actually look like? So lovely, has anyone seen this photo on the left? The lovely thing about satellite imagery is that the, it shows us the patterns of the earth and it's in very abstract form. And it can be beautiful to sort of see the earth, the bluish greens views from a distance. But it blocks out a lot of detail. Does anyone guess what we're looking at? Anyone 
Did it see the details in there? So on the left-hand side, you see a bit of a, a, a zoom out of what's on the right-hand side. And I really like this image. Lovely green there in the middle, and on the right-hand side, it kind of looks like bread. <laughs> it kind of looks like bricks. It's Mitzrayim in a form of food production. On the left-hand side, we see those little plots that are full. Those aren't raisins on bread. Those are cows. What we're seeing is feedlots, intensive agriculture, intensive farming. Those, there's, nothing, there's no green, as you can see in the plots. They aren't eating grass. They're eating the grain that we grow. 77% of what we grow in Victoria alone is devoted to raising crops for animals to eat. And those cows will eat, they'll poo, they'll wee, and all of it runs into that central lake. It's just a cesspool. And under the worst conditions, they walk in that slurry and you're eating, some of us are eating, the product of that. It's beautiful from afar when you zoom in and you can see that there is injustice. Mitzrayim is full of injustice. This is, this is a product of a fine, highly refined process to create the maximum amount of meat with the minimum amount of resources. It's squeezing every bit of time and resource so you can have the quickest steak possible on your plate. And yet, I didn't want to zoom in, but you can see, imagine the kind of conditions they're in. And you can, if you've been exposed to the kind of imagery in some of the, the, the chicken raising sheds, chickens are raised on spaces that are no bigger than an A4 sheet of paper. Um, cows are, if you thought about milk, cows are constantly impregnated, constantly pregnant so that they can produce the milk that we drink. Pigs are kept in prone positions so that they can grow as big as, as quickly as possible. And God, looking at that, at his creation, screams at the injustice of it. What do we do? How do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? Is there a reason why God's reaction is not our reaction? Mitzrayim privileges quantity over quality. And Mithraim also removes us from nature. We're completely disassociated from the processes like this. There's a reason when we had to take satellite photos like this because farms won't let people with cameras in. They want the processes removed from us as far as possible for a reason because they're unjust. We're disassociated from farmers that grow. Um, the only reason why the milk for dairy farmers came to light earlier this year was because the media wrote the story that they were getting underpaid by the big conglomerates. All we're left with is a price tag to look at. And if we're lucky, we'll spend some time looking at the ingredients sheets. We're all reduced under Mitzrahim to being bricks in a wall, like the Pink Floyd song. We lose the linkages between the species that enrich us. And it's all a system of exploitation that runs counter to what God intended the Sabbath, and the earth is plundered as a result, and it ends up looking like this. 
So why are we like that? It goes back to the question of we know God created creation good, and yet we often end up choosing Mitzrayim. Why is that? It's often like that. I thought of that scene out of um, The Matrix where Cypher um, is doing a deal with Agent Smith and he, he says, I know this steak, he's sitting in a restaurant and he's got this steak on a fork and he's looking at it and he goes, I know this steak isn't real. But the Matrix, I know the Matrix tells me that it's juicy and delicious. And ignorance is bliss. So we're going to do a quick exercise. It's going to be kind of a meditative exercise. I kind of wanted to induce a bit of nature. You see some trays there. Um, We're going to do a bit of a propagation exercise to really get a grasp on the microscope details of how wonderful nature is. We're going to do some seed propagation. Quite easy. Everyone's done it. Just plant a seed and lo and behold, weeks later, it starts to sprout. We're also going to do some cutting propagation because you might not know, but you cut bits of plants, and it's amazing that you rip a leaf off, that little node that's left can tell whether it's underground or above ground. And depending on where it is, it'll become a leaf or a root. Plants are amazing. So we're going to do that, and we're going to think about what have we lost that helps us you know, appreciate nature. Yep. We lose that, and we end up choosing Mitzrayim at the counter. Um, is it because of the toil that we supposedly under? Is it because of the dominion that we supposedly have over the earth? Have a think about that. So if every person, I don't know, there are a few more than ten tables, but um, there are ten trays, and we can just grab one each per table and nominate a person to come and get that. And there are also some seeds that Rod has placed on the table. So take a pinch of them. I bought a packet that said it had 400 seeds. Clearly, that's not 400 seeds. I think Rod and I counted it something like probably less than 100. But it's sufficient. You know, just take a couple of seeds, about um, maybe six holes for a rectangular little container, and you can just put some seeds around in little different places. And for the lavender, which I picked this morning from the garden, we'll do that together. So, can you know, one person from each table. I need your help. Um, If you've picked one of these lavender things, I need you to dip it in the honey that you'll see in front of you at the very root. Not the root, but the end that I've cut off.
No, Shane, it's not opium. So if everyone's ready, we'll give a go at the lavender first. This is not a particularly strong-smelling lavender, but you can have a sniff of it. We're going to pretty much rip off every leaf off this. It seems brutal, but it will regrow. Okay, so you're going to leave, you're going to rip off the bottom few leaves. You want to leave about two or three nodes exposed, okay? So you're going to rip the top stalk off. Like this. And you want to leave about, let's say about two or three of those leaves, okay? Take everything off the bottom, so like this. I've left about two or three nodes there. In fact, I can probably take a bit more leaf. Those nodes that you've just exposed are going to be stuck into the long um, container. You want to submerge them under the soil so that they'll know that they're under. So about that much. The stalks that you see with the lavender on it, take those off. As I said, it seems pretty brutal, but plants are amazing. They will regrow. In about a month's time, you'll be able to see some growth, hopefully. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave about something like this. Oh, Rod, you just get rid of the stalks on the side. Oh, you've got a... Oh, yeah, that looks good. That looks good. Sorry, I was looking the wrong way. Yeah, so um, you could probably, yeah, break that off. And you could, you want to sort of limit the amount of leaves. You want the plant to be getting enough solar energy to regenerate, but not too much that has to actually feed those and sustain those leaves. So once you've done that, you can, oh, hopefully you dipped it in the honey. So the honey's there as a growth hormone to promote growth. And it also, as an antiseptic, stops the rot and the bottom, Okay. So now, once you've done that, um, there are some... Oh, yeah, I didn't get those chopsticks. Well, the idea was to sort of make a hole deep enough in the soil before and then just poke it in. Just kind of poke it in gently into the container, um, buried in the soil straight down, and hopefully the honey will stick onto it. Yes, someone's got the idea. That, that looks good. That looks good. You don't want... Ooh, yeah, maybe break that off. We don't want we don't want extra long stems sticking way out because that means that it'll take a lot more energy to sort of push the nutrients out to the end. That looks good. Yeah, that looks pretty good. Yeah. Oh, actually, go a bit deeper. I would go deeper. Bury, bury, bury as many nodes as you can. As long as you're leaving the leaves to attract some sunlight, it's looking pretty good. That's good. Yeah, this looks good. Cool. All right. So now we can move on to the seeds. So, you know, grab your little seeds and with a little prick of the biro, just make six holes in your rectangular container and chuck a couple of seeds in there in each hole. I was hoping the kids could be here for this, but they're not. Yep, you can use a stem. Yeah, use your stem that you have 
just to just poke a little, fix holes. And we want to aim for like the depth of maybe one to two seeds. So these are really tiny seeds, kind of like mustard seed size. These are actually mustard greens, Japanese mustard greens, red giants. So not actually mustard, but they taste like mustard. So just really shallow holes, just a little prick. Drop. If you do it deeper, it can, it might not germinate. And these are tiny seeds, so they really just need like a sprinkling of, of soil. You can just drop them in and you can almost see them. We're going to give them a water later. So yeah, at your tables, just have a discussion about how do you live on manna in Mitzrayim's pantry. Mitzrayim, Egypt was so rich in agriculture. Um, they had so much fruit and you know good things to eat. And yet, we're living this Mitzrayim. We've got so many things to choose from. And yet, God asks us to live on manna every day. All of us must find that difficult. How do you negotiate that every day? I had a question over here. So the the question was, uh, well, I'm just going to paraphrase this. So how do you live on manna in Mitzrahim's pantry? So what are your daily struggles in choosing manna over Mitzrahim, basically? Oh, yeah, manna is kind of like the daily bread that, you know, God gave the Israelites. And for us, um, manna, what does it mean to you? I guess what does it mean to you to choose manna over Mitzrahim? What is like, what's an example of a product that you would choose that represents manna to you? A type of eating, a type of food for you that represents manna. Mitzrayim, I don't have to talk too much about the golden arches, but there's lots of Mitzrayim in certain corporations. Um, but others around this, particularly in the inner north, we're so blessed with so many good examples of community-supported agriculture that are manna, like Series, you know, uh, we don't have to go too far for really good organic food. Um, it could be something like that. You don't have to. Might not be a huge answer, but you just think about it.
I'm probably interrupting a few conversations, but maybe wrap it up in about a minute and we'll start sharing. So, um, I can pick on Rod's table. Um, can you kick us off? Like, Rod, what are some manner daily bread, manuha practices? Uh, what goes through people's heads when they're at the counter at the supermarket, hopefully, or some store, having to choose between manna and manuha? Oh, sorry, Mitchell and manuha. Well, one of the things we talked about is the kind of conflict um, between what we do as individuals. So that we might seek to buy locally, buy things that are non-exploitative, buy things where the impact on the earth is more sustainable. Um, but we also talked about the the cost, the monetary cost of 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 that, um, and how for for people that are perhaps not as privileged, um, it's very difficult to eat ethically because it's much cheaper to eat unethically. So we also talked about the need perhaps to not just think about the way we shop but also kind of advocate against the kinds of food systems that mean it's really, really much cheaper to eat things that are bad for animals and bad for the planet and bad for the people that produce them. Thanks, Rod. Yeah, it's definitely... Um Gamma keeps the tradition, isn't it, to sort of eat organic food, and it, it shouldn't be. You know, it should be accessible to the majority world. All right. Well, Esther um, and I were sharing about what manna looks like to us, and I think that um, we talked about cooking. Um, Esther's partner, you know, cooking some stuff, chucking it in the slow cooker, is, yeah, she might not be her ideal. Um, I'm speaking on your behalf, actually, Esther. I might get you to share it because I'm, I'm paraphrasing. No, I guess I prefer um, the idea of buying something pre-marinated or prepared and then cooking it as opposed to just buying a pre-cooked meal. I guess we were talking about the difference, about, you know, going to Subway or something as opposed to buying something at the butcher that you then put in a tray and you put it in the oven. So, um, But I guess maybe we sort of would marinate meat ourselves. I mean, I would tend to do that. Yeah, but that's coming from, I think, an Asian culture of you do everything from scratch. I guess. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I like to cook, but it's, it's time intensive. Um, I actually baked. I, to commemorate the day, I thought, I've got to be the cicada cracker. Um, I'll bake something. So I baked the communion bread today and, you know, Rachel and I were, you know, kneading it last night. And my friend was, was telling us, there is such a thing as baker's delight. And but 15 minutes later, I'm going, yeah, it's better work. Um, but I thought of that thing that Rod was talking about, that Hebrew tradition where we, you know, think of 100 blessings a day or things to be grateful for in a day. And I was taking the time to sort of thank God to, the, the things that, you know, comprise flour. And when you sort of like get your hands dirty 
with anything. You know, it helps you to meditate and think about those things. So that for me, that's a personal you know, point where I can sort of think about what is my manner um, and choose to, from time to time at least, engage in a, a practical thing. That you know, we've lost so much knowledge about growing and looking at. It means so much nowadays because we have lost it. So there are a couple of slides. There's a couple of things that I really drew from living the Sabbath, and one of them is this idea that we eat in ignorance. Let you read that. That's from Norman Wordsworth's book. As consumers, we are mostly ignorant of what it takes to build healthy relationships, strong families, vibrant communities, and flourishing habitats. And I guess we can add to that list the food, the food that we eat, the nature that it comes from. And when we eat in ignorance... Any gratitude we can muster is pretty abstract. We can't really be grateful because we don't know all that we are to be grateful for. And when we lose, when we lost the sense that life is indeed a miracle, it's much more likely that we will abuse it. And that's what I wanted to get at with the seeds. I mean, if you aren't captured by the amazing nature of the seed, you know, it's a little tiny dot that has energy contained in it, a moisture detector, two solar panels that pop out at the right moment, and a root system that's waiting to burst into the ground and draw nourishment from the soil. We kind of missed it, haven't we? (laughs) If you aren't enraptured with the idea of mycelium, I don't know if you've heard that, but those little fuzzy white trails that you see in the ground sometimes, that actually join the forest. It's like the Wi-Fi, it's internet of the forest that enables trees to talk to each other, share nutrients. If one tree's lacking carbon, other trees can actually, they say, transmit this to other trees. Um, when a forest is under attack by a parasol or another threat, trees can transmit knowledge that will enable other trees to this threat in the future through this network. Amazing. So when we lose that sense of wonder, no wonder it's easy to abuse the very nature that our food comes from. And yeah, I love Psalm 65, or Psalm 8, sorry. It says, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And taking time to observe through that microscope lens the wonder of nature is never often the beginning of the gratefulness that is the bedrock of Sabbath. What happens when we actually engage in this? We think about not just us. We get away from this anthropocentric, man-centered belief that God died for us as humans. We read John 3.16 in a different way, that God loved Cosmos, the Greek word cosmos is used to describe all of creation, not just humans. And cosmos describes not only creation, but it describes the order in creation. God was in love. God has this chesed, it says in Hebrew, covenant love for all of creation. When you look at that satellite image of the cows, they just appear like you know, specks. But God had a covenant love with each of his creation and he sent his only son to die to redeem that 
And that's something we're called to engage in during the Sabbath. We're born of the soil ourselves. And Adam, the word Adam is related to the Adama, which is the earth. Adam was drawn from the earth. God breathed life into him. And the first commandment that came from God was to tend to the earth, to look after it. And it would in turn provide for him in a miraculous way that God was so amazingly in love with from the very beginning. Soil is, you know, soil is not just dirt. We don't call it dirt, it's alive. You know, one teaspoon of soil, you know, has between 100 million and a billion microorganisms in it. It's alive. And good soil produces good food. Soil is in you. I mean, they say that you probably haven't about a kilo of, of bioflora in your body that is helping to keep you alive. Not all bacteria are bad. I mean, thanks to advertising, we know that little green blue, blue blobby guys with high-pitched voices live in your stomach and do good things and fight off bad bacteria. Um, they say that Amish kids actually have half the chance of getting asthma than States because they live so close to animals, they breathe in the soil that is around them. That it's you know, everything from dog hair to who knows what else, and that joins them with nature in a way that stops the allergy that pushes us away from nature. We're so nature averse in many ways. Soil is kind of meant to be part of our lives. It's amazing to, to hold that the ecosystem to grow and be part of it. So we can't be ignorant. We can't be ignorant and be grateful at the same time. It's our responsibility to stand and wonder at God as we see. So under Manuha, what, what do we see instead of the exploitation that we saw before? Well, I've got to let me see. I think Psalm 65. Can someone read that out just before? for the land and water it, you enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for, you, for, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty, and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. So God is fundamentally not a distant God. He is fundamentally involved with his creation in a way that should inspire us to to be involved as well. And we'll just look at a couple of examples of what actually Manuha engagement with food and nature looks like. Instead of being atomized into tiny bricks that are totally removed from the network that makes up creation, this is an example of what they call companion planting. And there should be some gardeners around here that know about this, but this is an example of what they call a guild. They call it the Three Sisters Guild. It's a Native American tradition to grow corn, squashes, pumpkins, and beans together. 
And so what does a corn do? I mean, the corn grows nice and tall. It provides like a trellis for the beans to grow up. What do the beans do? They, they fix nitrogen in the soil. And in return, beans talk to the corn and say, hey, I'll trade you. you. Give me some sugar, I'll give you some nitrogen. The corn needs to grow. And the squash or the pumpkins, they grow at the base of the corn. And they grow these leaves that block out the sunshine that the weeds that would otherwise grow need. So protect, protecting the rest of the tree. It's a wonderful example of how God created networks. We're richer because of the cultures that exist. We're in, around us, not just one culture. We're richer, richer because of the, the flora that exists in us. God created us for community. And this is a wonderful example of that. Another example is in the States where um, a Christian farmer called um, Joel Salatin runs a farm called Polyface. And instead of seeing the intensive farming that we saw before, the cows, as you can see, they run through the pasture. They are made to sort of move on every day um, as they would be in, in nature. And behind them come the chickens that scratch through on day three when the maggots come up through the poo. They'll eat the grubs and spread the manure. And each animal has its role. And the pigs come along and they ferret through the straw that the, the cows walk in or sleep in. And they'll pick through the, the poo and all that, ferret away for the corn that's hidden in the grain. They dig for free. The pigs are amazing. They're not just repositories of bacon, pork and ham. They're miraculous because they've got an amazing sense of smell and their, their snouts are meant to dig. And Joel Salton talks about respecting the pigness of the pig and the goatness of the goat. Everything is, has a purpose in nature and they're all co-servants, co-creators in this nature. I love that example. So what is nature, I guess, done for me? It's opened my eyes to you know, many many wonders of God, and it's also given me rest. Um, this was a, in another life, I was in Afghanistan, and this is a picture that I took after three, four months behind barbed wire. And I took off from the base to go visit another base one day, and I had not seen green for three, four months. And I didn't realize how much I missed it. When I rose above, I looked at the Hindu Kush behind. You can see the, the caps of snow in the top left corner. They will run down at the winter melt and flood the plains next to this tributary and make it green. And it's just in stark contrast to the rest of the beach, well, desert-like conditions in Afghanistan. It's just the fine dust that just gets in everything, your eyes and your clothes. And... I, for the last two years, have, after I came back from Afghanistan, I um, went for the worst time. This is like, this is detox for me. My marriage of 16 years broke up. My, I didn't come back to a job. Um, I was mixed out. <laughs> and through that experience, I had to rediscover who my, what, who my trust in, what my trust was in. I came back to um, Melbourne initially and went to Canberra and um, I lived on a property, and about 14-acre property with um, some other Christians. We started growing chick- uh, raising chickens 
and a little garden with main compost, raised a worm farm, things that I'd never done before. And like this vision of green, God brought rest to my life through nature. That's what God intended, not just to feed us through nature, but to give us repose, to situate us in creation. And through that, I, I actually um, I got involved in the local community garden at school, and um, I started looking at their engagement with nature. Uh, they run a Stephanie Alexander garden kitchen, and I used to do community development work, and I would walk around the, um, the neighbourhood and look for good gardens. And lo and behold, God would guide me to places with really good gardens, and I turn out, it turns out Christians were, were behind it. Um, I discovered people like Joe and his wife, Ange, and they had an amazing garden. It turns out they run movies in their backyard for neighbours, and they have you know, all kinds of gardening events. It's a beautiful place, and you can just see the... The difference that green makes to the backyard, it's, it's a wonderful place of relaxation. So some of those are hard to spot from behind the fence, but some of them are easier. This is George and Florence, they're from Kenya, and uh, I, they love their corn. I don't know if you can tell. Um, so through some hard toil, they dug into some clay and, you know, put some gypsum in, and lo and behold, they've got this corn field in the front of their yard. This is in Canberra. And I got these people together and uh, we, we just started doing community together and you know, exchanging food and, and people just came. The Indians in the community came and shared their food and George and Florence shared their food from Kenya and, um, and Joe, who's from the Philippines, um, added their bit too. And we had a wonderful mix in the end. Um, just an example of one of our community days that we organised amongst ourselves. Um, I guess another good aspect of sharing Manuha food is that it gives us that macro lens, that 360 macro lens of seeing what's around us, the empathy that we often lack. This is a photo of a Bhutanese family. In 2013, a photographer went around the world and he took photos of 30 families and captured what they would eat in a week. And this is a Bhutanese family. I think there's like 15 of them there. No, 12. And you can see lots of fruit and veg. It's a lovely, you know, smiling, well, for the most part, smiling household. But well fed. And I think they seem to lack for happiness or food. This is another one from Mali, and they've got 15. Uh, and contrast this with what we eat. This is a family from Australia. So not too bad, they've got some fruit and veg there, but a lot of packaged stuff and a lot of soft drinks. But a family like that, that's about $67 a week per person compared with 40 cents for the Bhutanese family, and like a dollar for the, for the family from Mali. This is what we often forget about when we eat in Mitzrayim. This is the American family with their takeaway pizza. Poor Americans, they get, they get um, paid out a lot. But um, that could be us too. So the practice of Manuha eating and rest, taking time to slow cook, engage with our food, brings us closer with the community that God intended us to live in.
Terence Fretheim in the book Living the Sabbath um, talks about humanity's most fundamental task, and according to him it's this, it's to share, however imperfectly, in God's continuing creative work of fashioning a livable and lovable world, having dominion and subduing, or understood originally as completely positive for the life of other creatures. Indeed, as bound up in a common membership of creation, we're responsible in certain respects for the continuing becoming of creation. And a word that I drew from that was recreation. We talk about recreation and rest and recreation, but we forget the fact that God, by introducing Jesus into our world, was all about recreation. Breaking in forcefully into the world, the kingdom of God, as it was, as it was in, originally intended to be. And it wasn't just a task of Jesus. Jesus went to hell, came back, stopped by earth, gave us back the keys to creation and asked you and me to recreate it as he intended it to be. That's a powerful statement and it's empowering to you. So in the next couple of minutes, just think about what recreation means for you. How do you think that you can engage with recreation in Fitzroy, wherever you live? And we probably don't have time, but we'll just we'll just go into a couple of examples. This is um this is taken from China in the Huangtu Valley, Kuaito rather. And on the left hand side you can see the results of Mitzrayim, a completely barren terrace. And what they're doing right now is sort of preparing the land slowly through permaculture um, to capture the water better. And they train the farmers to not use the goats intensively, to let them roam and eat the roots, but to let them selectively roam around the area and to let the plants grow in its place. And they've grown a forest. This is literally 10 years later. This is recreation. It's a, in a rural context. But in an urban context, you can see what they've done here. and You can see which one is more pleasing to the eye. Another example of recreating a bare plot into a forest for food. This is a, a property that I visited in Wollongong. This is just the bananas. They look pretty huge because I've zoomed up on them, but um, they're not that far from Sydney, and you're growing bananas, and it's the lush garden and what's surprising is what you see the property looked like seven years ago on the top left. They came into that garden and ripped up a monoculture. What Mitzrahim does, it homogenizes, it atomizes, and it just makes everything the same. And we're not meant to be that. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to be in a forest, a living forest. They ripped up that lawn, got a turf cutter and started planting different species that would take care of each other, those guilds that I was speaking about before. And that enabled every plant to grow to the maximum capability it was designed to at the same time, giving its best to its neighbour in a way that was co-creative, enriching. This is an example of um, what they're doing in... This is Victoria Park. If you go to Victoria Park, you'll see this that they've just created um, to provide for the poor. Um, it's an example of how we can turn urban situations into 
co-creating opportunities. In Sydney, um, my friend Zag, and he's digging up what used to be a lawn bowls club in Camperdown. If any of you have been to Sydney and Camperdown, it's right in the middle of town. And lawn bowls, as lovely as it is, is an example of monoculture. It's like golf. It's, um, it's, it's amazing because they've turned this into a little food forest. This is several weeks ago. We were digging that up at the time, but that's now a flourishing garden. So think about that in the context of Fitzroy. Imagine what it could be like. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that big. You can be like a square metre. You can start with a square metre. We're starting with the little containers we have today. And another opportunity is permablitzing. Um, Rob was mentioning the training that I've done. I did a bit of training at Ceres in permaculture. I uh, did a design course. And um, many of us just come together every other weekend. This is in... Um, uh, just did in Forsyth, but we did another one. We're doing. I'm just doing design in Preston, and we just come together as volunteers on a weekend. We blitz someone's front garden in this case, or back garden, or both, and we would plant. We sit around, we eat, we talk, we share ideas. And my friend Jeremy, who was just there, he's a Christian as well. We were just saying, "This is like church. This is what church could be: sharing food." seeing each other for the gifts that we bring individually and collectively being enriching. And the products, apart from the plants, is the establishment of a polyculture and the abolishment of a monoculture that used to be lawn and now it's the beginnings of a food forest that will provide not only for this household but the neighbours around it. These are some wicking beds that we planted. Again, that was all lawn. And now we have chickens, we have some wicking beds and fruit trees that will grow in that. And I'm looking forward to the day that I can visit that in seven years' time and seeing a family fed and happy. Um, sharing cuttings. This is um, a friend of mine who just, she just cuts, does gorilla seeding and farming that um, just takes cuttings from everywhere and just shares them with people and shares seeds for free around the community. And it all starts from a small seed. So this is a, an example of square metre gardening that my friend uh, Dan planted in front of Old Parliament House at the Aboriginal Tenant. Um, it can be as simple as that. So, yeah, with that, um, let's remind ourselves again to look, to use the microscope, to look at the wonder of creation, to be conscious of what we're being grateful for in Manuha to contrast that with what we live in Littringham and to consciously make a choice to recreate with the God of creation, the God who loved creation with an undying covenant love. I'm going to pass back to Rod now and we're going to share in what we share with every week, love feast. Um, my apologies for my rustic sculpture. Uh, rustic does mean unsophisticated, so that's about as rustic as you get in terms of a lunch. Uh, I did think about the cold press grape juice, but it wasn't going to be practical. So thank you. Thanks, Dan. That was fantastic. So much to think about. Um, there's a man with lawn in the front and back of his house. Um, yeah, that's right. Have a perma blitz, whether I like it or not. Um, so we're going to do what we 
what we have has now become our custom, and that is sort of gather around the, the table here and have um, communion. What we'll do is you can ignore the crackers as a as a symbol of banished Mitzrayim. So <laughs> just leave them sitting there in their unhappy processed state and <coughs> um, take a little bit of bread instead. Um, so rip a chunk off and pass it around. And the, the one in here is gluten-free, if that's how you roll. Um, but, yeah, I just... Uh, perhaps we'll come forward and, yeah, I'll break one symbolically and come forward, get a bit of juice and a piece of bread, and then um, when we've all got juice and bread, I'll say a little prayer and then we can share it together. So come forward now. Loving God, I thank you for the way that we have been reminded this morning of the the wonders of your creation. Um, And help help us to experience genuine baker's delight rather than... uh, Are you allowed to do puns in prayer, Lord? I don't know. (laughs) It's a dad's prayer. Um, but I, d- I thank you for for the the delight of creation, and I thank you for the invitation to be a part of your work to to restore it, to recreate it, um, even in really small ways. Um, help us to to remember the guild, remember the fact that when every small thing makes its contribution to community, that something wonderful can grow. So help us to be encouraged to make our small contributions to to creation and open our eyes to what it really is as we as we eat and drink. Amen. <laughs>